I, dude, I totally appreciate it, especially on a Sunday, no man. I'm sorry. Have you uh, had a good weekend? Uh, yeah, it's been uh, sort of stressful. We did the uh, the EP release on Thursday night, midnight, and um, it's it's been sort of monitoring that and making sure that social media is going and promoting it and seeing you know how the YouTube spins and stuff like that are. And it's like not my wheelhouse that I'm comfortable in, so it's been pretty stressful. Well, I'm sure it's got to feel good at least a little bit, a little bit of a release to finally have the sucker out and people can now see it and hear it and getting good feedback, I imagine. Like, I was super stoked the moment I heard Dead and Gone. I was like, this sounds amazing. Yeah, I was. it's, it's pretty cool that they call it a, an album release because it really is a release. It's been like two or three years that we've been working on this stuff and to finally let people hear it and like not like worry about the mix or changing a guitar part or like like okay it's done it's officially done and now it's out and now it's like it exists and that's 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 a pretty pretty big deal it's pretty cool how long had you been working on this one um dead and gone was written probably started like three years ago yeah right right about the time that that um we like um walter and i got back together and started working on the dreaming stuff the end of that when we when we decided to do some stabbing westward shows we had already started writing you know new material not really sure whether it was going to be a release as the dreaming or a stabbing westward or what the future of it was going to be but we realized that it was the first time that we'd written together from scratch in a long time. When we were doing my other band, The Dreaming, Walter joined the band. Half the songs were already written. I'd already written, you know, vocal melodies and some music and stuff. And then he came in and did, you know, new music for a lot of the pre-existing songs. But he was sort of working within the, the confines of the existing band, you know, the structure of what we'd already done. So when we started writing this material, as we were writing it, we kind of felt like there were walls around us. And then we started to look around and go, the only barriers around us are what we've created. We can just do whatever we want. No one's expecting anything. So we just, you know, started writing for the fun of it. And uh, we weren't really sure if we were going to release it. We weren't sure if people interested if they just wanted to keep hearing what do i have to do and save yourself but after a year of touring it seemed like people were actually kind of into it so i'm glad you decided to share it with with the world man people need to hear this kind of new music and this quality of new music i need to get it out (laughs) it's like you know when you're writing stuff that's like this personal it's like you know poison you got to get it out of you otherwise it just sits there and festers so i'm 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 glad it's finally out and people can hear it was there a uh a mission statement or as far as writing for this was it just kind of however many songs came or did you just want to keep it to three or talk about that process yeah we have a whole album we have a whole album's worth of material written i think we have 11 songs total that all are fairly thematic to each other the problem is just time the 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 time it takes to take a a song from 75 percent to 100 percent it just takes commitment to do it and um we had 10 songs where the the general structure of the song is written the lyrics the vocal melodies and the the bones of the music then there's just, just the details just the going in and you know polishing it and getting rid of the parts you don't need and you know maybe adding live drums or some guitar and stuff with walter running a radio station in seattle right um and he's like starting a new life up in seattle he just moved from chicago so he's like getting all that up and going and then i've got two little kids at home and a dog and a 
house and a family and all this other stuff. And then Carlton's on tour with either Orgy or Berlin all the time. And then our drummer's running a drum school for kids out in La Habra. And so everyone's just busy with life. So it's not like the old days where our full-time job was to go in the studio and write music. Right. <laughs> uh, just getting just getting it finished is the hard part. And we decided, <laughs> we decided let's do an EP because at least then we only have to focus on three songs. And we, we did that. We finished the three songs. And then it became, okay, now we have to try and knock out a video. And then that turned into three videos. And it's like, okay, now we need to get this stuff mixed and mastered and get it to Spotify and iTunes and all that, you know, far enough in advance that we can actually hit the release date. And it was like all these, you know, I ordered CDs for the the record release party we're having this Saturday in LA and uh, they're not done yet because of the holidays you know Walter arbitrarily picked January 3rd and it like seriously could not have been the worst date <laughs> ever to pick because it's the first day everyone got back to work right and most people aren't really going back until the 6th they're going to take off the rest of the week and the weekend so he, he picked like the just absolute I lost <laughs> 15 days of possible time to like get stuff turned in but um we hit the date. It's, uh, it's going pretty good. Like, I think we're at 15,000 views on YouTube or something, which is amazing. So as a guy that, that's been part of the, the quote-unquote machine and now a guy that, you know, if you want it on YouTube and iTunes and all that stuff, you're getting it done yourself. How do you how do you prefer it? Do you prefer being that hands-on, even if it is something out of your comfort zone, at least you know it's happening and getting done right the first time? I don't know. I mean, the machine at Sony was, was pretty well-oiled machine <laughs> i didn't have to worry about anything other than just writing songs and singing and staying skinny and you know it was that was that was a pretty good life um <laughs> we didn't make any money though so the, the machine sucked a lot of money to run yeah it's it's pretty stressful i'm i'm not i'm not super happy doing it all myself like this but um you know it's getting done the, the, i think the weirdest part for me is the, the amount of of hours and effort that goes into it and then once you actually hit midnight on thursday night and everyone got it you start seeing the comments come in you realize that it's just over so quick it's like you release it and then people listen to it they consume it and then it's consumed and they're like okay more 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 we want more i think that's why we're doing it as three eps instead of one album because i realized if we'd released 10 songs, they would have consumed them in an hour and then looked at me going more, give us more songs. So this way we can at least spread out the excitement over the course of the year and finish the other songs as we go. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I like it better or not. I'm not sure. No, no, that's okay. And just as you're thinking it all through, the question leading back to you said like an album's worth of material. Is it the idea to do like say three EPs and then a collective album at some point? Or Yeah, just... yeah, that, that's the plan right now. So if we do three EPs, the idea behind it was if you release a whole album, then when you go on tour, you're expected to play seven or eight songs from that album live. And I just think that's too much material to dump on fans who are coming to see the band based on our older catalog. Right. And I appreciate that. I don't want to go see, you know, a, a band from the 90s and have them not play any of their hits from the 90s, but play some new album they wrote in, you know. 2019. So by doing the EP, you can let people hear it in advance, and then we'll add one or two songs to the set, see how they go over, and they won't be new. People have heard them for a couple of weeks or whatever. And if we can kind of trickle new songs into the set that way, then it's not such a, hey, we're going to play an hour's worth of songs you've never heard before as you look at your Facebook page and your eyes glaze over. Yeah, so that, that was part of the plan. And then just every time that you release something, it kind of 
creates a spike for the band, and we need little spikes like that. We've been we've been touring for the last two years, playing old material, and it seems to have reached a, a plateau where people are like, okay, they can still play Save Yourself. That's cool. But yeah, we want to we challenge ourselves. But the idea is like three EPs, three songs each, do some remixes or some cool covers on each EP, some bonus material, and then end of the year, we're going to release all three EPs and then a fourth EP's worth of material and fit, make it a finished album and probably do like a, a cool colored vinyl release of some sort. That'd be sweet. Are you going to do that? Yeah, you think I think it'll be cool. By that point, are you hoping to have a label involved or just keep it DIY or just see how it goes? I, I guess DIY for now. Um, now that I've actually got the infrastructure in place to do it, that was the hard part. We, we were on Metropolis. The Dreaming was on Metropolis before, and I guess we, we technically still are if we put out another record. It, it just didn't seem to make sense to do it on a label when we started talking about it because labels tend to take you know, 90% of the money from a record sale. Like, like they'll give you a dollar for an album that you sold for 10, whether it's a digital download or a physical CD. Right. Um, and, and so you, you can't really justify spending the money, like, you know, a, a video costs 2,500 bucks to make a video. You don't get paid for people watching that, but you still have to pay for it so that you can have something on YouTube for people to watch. So you need the money coming in from downloads to pay for the video to make new music. And if you do it on a record label, you just kind of seem to get caught in a never-ending spiral of debt. So it didn't seem to make any sense. But now that I see how hard it is, it's like, ah, well, maybe it's worth, you know, not making anything off of the, the songs just to have them out there. Because that, that's the end goal, is just to have new music for people to listen to. A lot of people complain, oh, when you stream music, you get to listen for free. But in the olden days, we would listen to the radio and they would play songs on the radio for free. And we would listen to them and hope they came on. And, you know, it's the same, same exact thing. Right. So, the new age, the new dawn. Yeah. We can instantaneously listen to whatever song you feel like. You know, back in the day, we had to go skateboard to the, get the cassette and actually pop it in. And now it's just in the air I immediately. I used to do it in the early 80s. I didn't even have a cassette deck hooked up to my FM radio. So I would actually put the cassette deck with like a microphone in front of my speaker of my radio. Oh, wow. The speaker into the microphone. So if my baby sister was screaming in the background, you'd hear her screaming <laughs> over, you know, whatever song I was trying to record, whatever, you know, song from Get the Knack or Cheap Trick Live at Budokan or something. You'd hear like my baby sister screaming in the background. <laughs> you know, I was going to ask you too, uh, Bar Sinister coming up, kind of a uh, EP yeah. release party. Is the band playing as well? Oh, yeah, for sure. We're going to do a set. We're going to add um, Cold and Dead and Gone to the set. Yeah, play, play a show. It's a really tiny club, and it's like outside, and um, it, it's pretty cool. It's like it'll, it'll sell out pretty fast, and it'll be super crowded and crazy. Stage is so small and, and oddly shaped that you can't really move around too much or anything, but it's a really, really fun show. Um, it's kind of the antithesis of the giant House of Blues stage right. kind of shows that we've been doing <laughs> a lot of. So it'll, it'll be kind of fun to do that. And those are our people. The whole goth industrial scene comes out for those. And so it's like everyone's all decked out in their best Robert Smith clothes and hair. And it's, it's a pretty fun night. It should be cool. Yeah, it does feel like there's a little bit of a, I don't know, resurgence or rebirth, a little bit of, of industrial and goth, and it feels like it's coming back around again a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I feel like just the 90s in general. I mean, for the last the last 10 years, it's been the 80s have been making a resurgence. A lot of 80s bands, like uh, Carlton's in the band Berlin, and they were doing a ton of shows over the last decade. 
And then you hear a lot of bands on the radio that sounded very 80s. And it seems like now that the kids who are in high school in the 90s have reached that weird age where suddenly their kids are, you know, grown up enough that they can go out and see shows again or, you know, whatever. Now the 90s seem to be making a resurgence. And, yeah. you know, that's cool. It's good, good, good for us. And it's, it's, um, it's good because I think that we still make 90s music. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you ever really stopped making the music you made originally. So. Speaking of uh, music from back in the day and, and something that I miss from back in the day that used to happen all the time in 90s and it was a good, you know, back when we didn't have YouTube and all this stuff, a, a way to discover bands was via movie soundtracks and you were a part yeah. of a ton of them. And uh, how was that experience for you? Did it ever, uh, well, A, how did they kind of happen for you? And then B, did any of them pay off? Is there one that looking back, you know, people came up to you like, oh, I heard you on this soundtrack more than an, another. Any any good experience over there? All bad? Or talk to me about that. No, they, they, they were all good. Um, the only one that we really ever got to um, participate in actively was Not Another Teen Movie. And they asked us to cover um, a New Order song. And it was not one that I would have picked. It's one of the happier New Order songs. Like when, when Orgy covered Blue Monday, that's a dark song, and they made it super dark and heavy. I'm like, that's awesome. And we got Bizarre Love Triangle, which is like, every time I see you fall, it's like super happy. Right. Like, oh, I don't, you couldn't really do anything with it. Cause we, I wanted to make it, you know, darker and sadder somehow, but there's just no way to do it. <laughs> that was the only one that we really participated in. All the rest of them, we wrote the music for albums, and then uh, music directors of films would, would pick them, or they'd be pitched them from our label or whatever. I think the one that did the best for us, oddly enough, was Mortal Kombat. Ah. And the Mortal Kombat soundtrack, like platinum or gold, and we were never on the soundtrack. But none of the bands on the soundtrack were in the movie. But we were all over the movie. We had six songs inside the movie, and they were basically snippets off of our first album, uh, the instrumental sections of songs. And characters in the movie, when they would come on screen, they would use a snippet of our song as their sort of theme music. Oh, wow. And that, that became... Yeah, that became a really big deal. And it actually came back in royalties uh, from HBO, Showtime, Cinemax, all that stuff. Whenever they play Mortal Kombat or DVD was sold, we would we would make um, a nickel or whatever. <laughs> but we were in so many movies. I mean, Bride of Chucky, Escape from L.A., not another teen movie. I know what you did last summer. The Faculty. There's, there's literally, I think, 40 movies that we were in that I can't even remember. Wow, um, I get the I get the the statement once a year with all of them, and the, <laughs> you know the nickels add up to whatever. But um, it's it's pretty cool. It's, it's it's something I would like to pursue as a writer. I'd like to actually be given a chance to do like a, a score to a film, like a, a sci-fi or a creepy film. Yeah, a lot of guys are are getting into that. Like uh, Fred Corey, who was a drummer in Cinderella, he's doing that for like some TV shows, doing some of the like music scoring, like some of the the Sonic background kind of noise stuff yeah the drum the drummer from stabbing the original well uh, not the original the, the main drummer from stabbing andy he started a business right when the band broke up doing um the little 15 second pieces of music that you hear on like um garage like you know oh right i can't think of the name of it like diy shows you know you'll hear right. like you know now we're going to cut down the hedges it'll be like a, a metal riff or something as they start up the chainsaw or whatever he's, <laughs> he's made a business out of that he's been doing it for almost 20 years now that's Pretty a, cool. yeah that's a great way to get paid man just doing it from home yeah, especially yeah. too yeah from, he just has a studio at home and just knocks it out making a killing on it it's pretty cool 
mailbox money, as they call it. Yeah, exactly. Never have to, like with Amazon now, you never have to leave the house. Just have groceries and wine delivered and go. <laughs> well, dude, I appreciate all the time. I won't take up too much more, but I, oh, no I did have a couple yeah. couple more things I wanted to get from you. Uh, we're talking about old albums and stuff from back in the day, and mm-hmm. we just kind of passed the 30th anniversary of Pretty Hate Machine. And also, oh, yeah. yeah, you have the uh, connection with Chris Vrenna playing on the old Stabbing Westward demos back mm-hmm, in the day. So mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to hear that story and then think back to, to 30 years on Pretty Hate Machine, too. Yeah, actually, I did a little story um, for, I think, Spin Magazine when that, that came up. They asked some artists who they thought were influenced by it, what they thought. I think that, it, that the album itself has aged incredibly well. I think the thing that made that album so great then and now is that it was based around 10 really great songs. Like every single song on that record is a song. There's no throwaways. There's no, let's see how heavy and brutal we can get. It's just like every single song was a, a, had a great chorus and a great verse and a great hook. Every song was about something different, but the whole record had a theme to it. So that was, in my mind, that was his masterpiece. He, he did other great records. I know that like people love The Fragile and stuff like that, but um, in, in my opinion, Pretty Hate Machine was like this like masterpiece that stood the test of time. For, for the ages. Yeah, so Chris Wren and I played together in Warsaw, which was a Chicago industrial band back in the day. Chris was playing drums for them after he left Min, and they asked me to tour as like just an auxiliary guy. I was doing keyboards, percussion, playing some trumpet, singing background vocals. Wow. Know, doubling what, what Jim's saying. So that was, that was my first ever real tour, and Chris was the drummer, and he was like, by that time, he'd toured for five years with Nine Inch Nails, and I think he'd done a year with KMFDM by that point too. So he was like a seasoned veteran. And he taught me a lot just about being on the road, like how to how to maintain living. <laughs> like suddenly you're like, like every single night is a gig and a party and like, okay, you got to slow down. You got to pace yourself. You have to make sure you get some sleep. Don't do drugs every night, you know, try and, <laughs> try and pace yourself. And that was, that was a big deal. So I was like, you know, a little kid, like, ah, this is awesome. I thought I was going to explode. So yeah, Chris was like kind of my, and we're the same age, I think. And Chris was like my mentor at the time. Yeah. And then, and then Trent and I have a weird connection where we were born uh, less than eight hours apart. So wow. his birthday is on May 17th and my birthday is on May 18th. Same same day, same year. We're basically the same age. He just got an eight-hour head start on everything in life <laughs> and just, just really maximized that to the most. I'm always just right behind him. Right Two there. steps almost behind. Almost got a Grammy, almost got an Oscar. You know, just right there. <laughs> almost got a country Grammy. <laughs> yeah, it's like, Mom, couldn't you just push harder? Jeez, I was like the fifth kid. I should have just fallen out. If I could have done a jumping jack, I could have beat the guy, but, you know, what are you going to do? Hey, a couple more uh, things for you. I'm curious where, where, you know, talk about the industrial side, obviously Nine Inch Nails uh, being a big influence, but uh, one of the things that I've always loved about your band, Stabbing Westward, always brings in the, the chunky guitar, and I'm curious kind of where your your metal comes from, so to speak. Who are the guitar tones that you like? Who are the, the riff guys that you look towards for your It, it for certainly that didn't come from me. I'm not the metal dude in the band at all. Huh. Um, I, I was more of like a Robert Smith guitar aficionado i like that more sort of arabic lots of delay kind of guitar i think each time that we do a record the guitar player would bring his personal sort of feel to it stewart who played on on god is an amazing guitarist and bass player and he had this like crazy cool feel where he could palm mute on the bridge and just get these like huge chunking sounds i know uh he, he was mostly old school 
industrial, like the early ministry or the the, the middle ministry with the, like Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste and um, Man of Rape and Honey, the really, really heavy guitar ministry stuff. But um, when Mark started playing guitar after the Wither album, he had really good sort of metal chops too. He could he could sit down and play it like uh, a Metallica album, no problem. He would do that all the time. But yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure. Like Carlton's style is definitely more old school industrial too. So it, it's weird. We have the heavy heavy guitars, but I don't really know where they came from or how they became <laughs> part of the sound. But now we just know that they're there and we have to keep doing it. <laughs> right. So it's like, that that was a big thing when we did this record. It's like, okay, we're going to do a stabbing record. And then Walter and I were like, well, what does that mean? How do you define a stabbing record? And and even the fans now are like, oh, this sounds like a dreaming record. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Like, <laughs> if, 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 if he's writing the music and I'm writing the vocals, or if I'm writing the music and the vocals, then isn't that just what it is? But I think over the, the, the course of Stabbing Westward, there were so many musicians that came in and left their DNA imprint on the band, like Stuart uh, on, on God, the guitar player, totally le- like, like added guitar where there wasn't that much guitar before he joined the band. And so then guitar became a part of the thing. And then when Andy joined the band, he was not only the drummer, but also a major songwriter. And he added, what do I have to do? Sometimes it hurts haunting me. Uh, and the songs like that, that had that like really thick background harmony, background vocals in the chorus, that was, that was Andy's DNA imprint on the band. He kind of brought like a softer, different side to the band. And because what do I have to do was our first you know, bona fide hit, that became a part of the DNA. And we we're forever trying to recreate that sound. But in all honesty, Walter and I had nothing to do with it. That was purely Andy. So when we try and write now, I have to think, okay, I don't want to write like how I would expect Andy to write. I just need to write like me, and that's just going to be what it is. Maybe at some point Andy will write a song with us again, and it'll have that DNA imprint. But um, yeah, it's just so weird how people come and go, and then they leave their stamp on the band, and then we're like going, okay, great. Well, now we have to <laughs> implement this guitar tone into the band that I, you know, it's pretty weird. Yeah, it takes on a life of its own. It's outside of us. It's weird. Last question for you, man. I appreciate all the time. Oh, no worries. Yeah. One question I like to ask everybody and just kind of to have some fun because ultimately we're all music fans and to get you a little bit out outside of your wheelhouse a little bit, but a fun little musical game I like to play, putting bands in category and make you kind of choose your favorite out of this category. Okay. So we were talking earlier about kind of 90s now being the thing, and I was kind of trying to think of a way to encapsulate 90s rock, especially being a radio dude to come up with dumb corny game like this one. And so I've come up with this game or in this little grouping of bands to encapsulate 90s rock where I call it the Flannel Five. Okay. So not that this is a tour or anything that could happen, but just curious who your favorite out of this list would be. Your number one out of Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots, Soundgarden, or Alice in Chains? Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam 10 was, Pearl Jam 10 was a brilliant record, top to bottom. Yeah, Black was one of my favorite songs of all time. I did love Soundgarden. I loved Chrissy's voice, but it was a bit too metal for me. I love Nirvana. It has it didn't age well with me. Like like as I listen, if, if Nirvana pops on the radio station now in the car, fifty fifty chance I'm going to reach out and change it. I don't know why. It's weird. Um, never never was a Stone Temple Pilots fan. Uh, loved Alice in Chains, but yeah, absolutely. Pearl Jam Ten was was one of the 
top five albums of my life for sure. Talk about another album that's been played to death though too, between Alive and and Jeremy and you know yeah for sure <laughs> daughter and all those songs, but all brilliant. Wow, that's great to hear. So Pearl Jam, okay, pick a Pearl Jam tune to play on the radio. Black, love it. That's my favorite one. That's my favorite one. Once is mine off of off of ten. I love that song. Which one? Once, yeah, once is a great song too. Well, dude, it's been so much fun talking to you. I'm glad we were able to finally make this happen. And- yeah, sorry it took so long. Dude, you rock. Thanks for checking out the entire podcast. Now just hit the subscribe button. That way you get it sent to you directly. And follow me on social media at MikeZ967. Don't miss the radio show, bro. Wired in the Empire happens every Saturday night at midnight on 96.7 KCAL Rocks online at kcalfm.com. Adios.